morning, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition on this Saturday night, November 13th, of the other side of midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn where the things that used to be confined to these hours are now with us 24-7. And we're going to get very deep into the weeds on all this tonight. We're going to tackle, you know, a really most difficult subject, which is what the hell is going on with the United States government and with the U.S. population and with our national interests and with our individual concerns. And we'll kind of throw in just for the heck of it, the rest of the planet. Um, There's some very interesting news kind of, you know, uh, framing this question, which I'll get to momentarily. For those who are new to the show, I want to direct you how to get to the other side of midnight, uh, which is, of course, our URL. You simply go to the internet, type in theothersideofmidnight.com, and that takes you to our homepage. If you click on tonight's banner, which says rather dramatically, because uh, we like to be dramatic over here, American history and revolution, with a picture of a burning White House. How's that for subtlety? Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. Our guest tonight is Dr. Bruce Olav Solheim. If that name rings a bell, it's because Bruce was here just six days ago, last Sunday night. So what I did is I asked him to change hats, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, and to put on his American history professor hat. And we're going to go through a number of interesting things that are occurring from, I guarantee you, a perspective you will not hear probably any place else on the internet, on broadcast radio, on YouTube, on Google. I mean, this is going to be one for the books. Before we get there, however, under the banner on the guest page, you'll see uh, where it says Fast Links to Items. Click on my name. That takes you down to a section we call, for all you newcomers, Radio with Pictures, which I freely stole from RKO many, many years ago because... Believe it or not, I actually had a script on a lot of the stuff we talk about uh, up in a development deal with RKO, and unfortunately it did not, as most development deals did not pan out, but what, what I kind of salvaged was the idea of radio with pictures, because remember RKO was a radio picture, so little play on words there. If you go to my items number one, again, we're leading tonight with La Palma. This is a live link. Click on it. It will take you to the official information on the current status, the six-week status of the in continuing La Palma eruptions. La Palma is one of the larger islands in the Canary Islands. Uh, in September, a volcano which hasn't blown its top for many, many decades suddenly started erupting. And the reason that any of us over here on the other side of the pond, as they used to say, are interested is because of the possibility that this set of eruptions or the gas magma inflation of the island itself will cause about half the island, which cracked 
uh, in a previous uh, series of events back in, uh, I think it was 1949, and half the island could slide into the Atlantic, creating as a 2001 rather detailed geological model, uh, which was published in peer-reviewed journals, pointed out, could cause a major mega tsunami, which would race across the Atlantic at the speed of uh, sound, something like six, 700 miles an hour. And six to nine hours later, it would wash up on the American East Coast and cause like, untold, absolutely catastrophic devastation. Now, that's the worst case scenario. And I've been saying now for weeks, Pay attention, put this link on your phone. If there's major seismic events, you know, it will let you know and you can, you know, grab your go bag, which presumably if you're on the East Coast, you have packed and you can get out of Dodge. And I noticed the other day that there was a Florida television station, I think it's Channel 8, which has actually posted a very considered piece on why such a mega tsunami ultimate catastrophe will not occur. And given that it's the other side of the story, and remember around here I'm a very firm believer in the First Amendment, that's why I, you know, post a lot of things, including things on the other side of the news that I do not absolutely agree with, but as Thomas Jefferson said, I will defend to the death their right to say it, First Amendment. So, First Amendment, item number two, is the reasons why the La Palma eruption cannot cause a mega tsunami in Florida and by metonymy the rest of the East Coast. So you might want to look at that very carefully and it all comes down to which scientific model do you believe? The author uh, who was quoted, the geologist who was quoted extensively in the piece uh, points out that the modeling, geological modeling and general data and general background and uh, pun intended depth of knowledge uh, on this subject has increased enormously <clears throat> since 2001. And that is true. Um, and so according to those calculations, uh, a tsunami, if it occurred with the island, you know, parts of it fragmenting and sliding into the Atlantic would cause no more than a seven to 10-foot wave as opposed to the hundreds of foot wave which the preceding paper back in 2001 had published. Given that I know the fragility of scientific modeling, all we have to do is look at our, you know, year and a half, two years of experience with COVID-19 and look at all the predictions based on fragmentary data on that and how many have been wrong or have had to be corrected or modified or withdrawn, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not a big fan of scientific modeling. And in this case, you know, it's, uh, you remember the old uh, controversy about uh, defense against terrorists? You know, homeland security has to be right every single time. The terrorists only have to be right once. Well, it's kind of like that with the Palma. If I lived on the East Coast, and I do have family there, so I've got them to put this alerting, uh, alerting system on their phones, uh, I would be erring on the side of ultimate extreme caution. I would read with interest the scientists, the geologists who are saying this is no big deal. 
But given the fact that we have visual evidence of stunning, bizarre, hyperdimensional torsion field clouds right over La Palma, a huge, slowly spinning vortex, I would be a little bit um, cautious about accepting any mainstream models because, again, if, as one of our scenarios, someone is doing this, and have you noticed how many major volcanoes are erupting around the world right now? Even if no one is doing this, i.e. like a weapon, the natural background physics that we have been tracking in the hyperdimensional torsion field model says that this kind of activity must increase in amplitude and in terms of frequency as we get nearer that nodal point that we've been discussing. Remember the the point on the calendar where the conditions are the same in the physics as they haven't been for something like 26,000 years. We're going to talk a lot more about this next Sunday night when I've invited uh, Rick Levine, our kind of resident hyperdimensional astrologer, uh, back to the other side of midnight. And we're going to go through some really interesting new data points indicating that something major I mean, something really amazing in the field is going to go down of all times on Christmas Eve, December 24th, little over a month away, that will have ripples ahead in time. We're going to talk about all this, but it's basically going to be another tutorial on how this physics reaches into the nursery and affects each and every one of our lives both at a collective level, which is what we're going to talk about tonight under the aegis of, you know, what's going on with the United States, as well as the very, very, very personal level. Uh, just as, as an aside, you did note from, I believe, the um, Labor Department, the rather remarkable statistics for August, that something like 4.6 million Americans just quit their jobs. Almost 5 million people just said, take this job and shove it, to quote a very famous song. And the background of that, I mean, there are a lot of factors going on, but part of it, I believe, could be attributed to the physics and people waking up, looking around, and realizing that even though they need the money, you know, uh, flipping hamburgers at McDonald's, is not exactly a, a uh, satisfying career choice. And so you have this enormous number of people who are just kind of suspended looking for something more fulfilling. Well, that to me says enhancement in terms of the physics of consciousness looking around and saying in that great uh, song by, I think it was Peggy Lee, is this all there is? No, this is not all there is, as you're going to hear in several different dimensions, pun intended, tonight. Item number three. Uh, this one, this, this is getting really into interesting territory. Um, I don't think most people are aware that a few days ago, there was a two-hour conference 
comprising some very interesting big names in space and in intelligence and in academia uh, held at the, of all places, the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And it was called, incredibly enough, it was called the future of space. I mean, this is really bizarre. Our future in space was the actual technical term. Now, item number three, if you click on that, that will take you to an article in the New York Post, uh, which, among other things, has some very interesting quotations from a woman named Averill Haynes, who just happens to be the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence. Remember, back after 9-11, there was a top-to-bottom review of why the intelligence community was not talking to each other, why the CIA wasn't talking to the DIA, and why the DIA wasn't talking to the FBI, and why the FBI wasn't talking to naval intelligence. And so they created this kind of top-down control system, which was a director of national intelligence to coordinate the 16 admitted to alphabet agencies that are supposed to be gathering intelligence for the United States government. And that person, who in this case is named Averill Haynes, reports directly to the President of the United States and delivers briefings on a daily or even semi-daily basis, depending upon the state of the world, the state of our relationship to the world, etc., etc., etc. Well, at this conference, which again was held at the National Cathedral, kind of echoing Jacques Vallée's uh, conclusions many, many years ago that the UFO phenomenon and um, uh, occult phenomenon and spiritual phenomenon and religious phenomenon are all, in some sense, the same phenomenon. So... You hold a conference where our future in space, which is what we're doing in space, and then what or who might be out there doing something to us, i.e. the recent uh, Pentagon report on the UAP phenomenon, which of course is supposed to be unidentified aerial phenomenon, which is a kind of a code name for UFOs. And remember the naval uh, battle groups, the... uh, uh, carrier battle groups, both on both coasts, going back to 2004, which have had major encounters uh, between F-16 and F-18 pilots, and uh, things buzzing the uh, the fleet uh, repeatedly now. In fact, uh, it was said the other day by I'm trying to remember what the source was that since the appearance of the uh, uh, major story in the New York Times in 2017. Uh, talking about the Navy's encounter with these UFOs repeatedly, that there have been something like 300 additional incidents which have now been dutifully recorded. And there is discussion about a uh, set of Senate and House hearings, which probably won't begin now until the after the turn of the year. But this has been quietly simmering on a back burner. And suddenly, out of nowhere, this conference was sprung. If you, by the way, click on this link, item number three, that will take you to the New York Post story. 
whose headline says, UFOs buzzing U.S. warships may be aliens. Quoting top spy chief, Avril Haines. Ms. Haines is the top spy chief who introduces the president um, during, uh, uh, you know, briefings um, uh, in the White House on the status of U.S. national security. Anyway, she makes a very interesting comment in this piece, which, of course, is abstracted from the actual uh, YouTube video of the conference, all two hours plus of it, which is available there. Just scroll a bit down in the uh, in the in the New York Post piece. You can find a clickable link with a, uh, a big uh, arrow, uh, kind of a, a delta turned sideways. Click on that. That will... Uh, uh, take you to this conference, which was November 10th. I mean, literally, just a couple, three days ago. So, um, in this piece, she is asked questions during the conference about the intelligence community assessment of uh, the UAP. And she says, and this is very interesting, um, because, again, this is the top spy employed by the U.S. government, reporting directly to the president. Um, The main issue, she says, that Congress and others have been concerned about is safety of flight and counterintelligence issues, she told the forum. Continuing the quote, always there's also the question, quote, is there something else that we simply do not understand which might come extraterrestrially, she said. And then the post says, Haynes appeared to hesitate when mentioning the word extraterrestrially. So, we are being prepared. I mean, there is no doubt. No doubt at all we are being prepared. The question is, what are we being prepared for and when will the balloon go up? That's a very ancient phrase dating back to World War II. In other words, when will something in this arena, in this field, trip the national and international consciousness, go viral, and begin an ascending set of events and network coverage and wall-to-wall discussion by all the pundits where suddenly the concept of Earth not being alone and us being visited by extraterrestrials, quoting Ms. Haynes, will become de rigueur, will become commonplace, will become mainstream. Obviously, you know that our position is it cannot come too soon because, frankly, and we're going to talk about this tonight with my guest, I'm thinking at this point that maybe the only thing that will bring us all together, not just in as this country in its incredibly polarized political situation, but the world, which has been, you know, fragmented for, you know, thousands of years, if not tens of thousands, the only thing that may bring us all together, as President Reagan said to um, uh, Gorbachev many, many decades ago, is some unknown alien threat. And if that sounds like a downer, remember, the threat doesn't have to be real. 
there don't have to be bad guys out there who are basically after us with ray guns and spaceships. The perception that we are not alone, that we are not isolated, that we are a human family confronting the unknown, that could be enough to bring the kind of solidarity which can move through this transition in a very positive fashion. Which brings me to item number four. As you know, for the last several weeks, I've been, uh, you know, kind of uh, jumping up and down over the comments that Bill Shatner made after he returned uh, to Earth from his 11-minute excursion into near-Earth space in an up-and-down suborbital flight in a Blue Origin spacecraft sponsored by the um, second most wealthy person on the planet, Jeff Bezos. Well, would it surprise you to know that Jeff Bezos was one of the voices at this conference, again held at the National Cathedral, affirming Jacques Vallée's religious cum extraterrestrial model that they're really all one? Anyway, back to item number four. So I've been really keen on the fact that after all these decades, after I tried valiantly in all kinds of different ways, when I uh, you know, got to know Gene Roddenberry many years ago, I tried him to mix the streams, mixing our movie metaphors madly. I tried to get him to take the Star Trek universe into reality, into how did we get from here to there? How did the Federation form? How did we go from a primitive, not even type one planetary civilization, uh, quoting Carl Sagan on the Kardashev scale, to where we are now essentially poised to become a type one, and yet we feel we are all alone? When does the reality of a federation of planets in the galaxy, of star systems, um, of the Star Trek universe, when does all that dawn? So I've been really interested in how Bill Shatner's comments about his personal, extraordinary, you know, 11-minute transformation of thinking that he, you know, knew everything he was going to experience and came back with incredible humility saying he knew nothing and this was real and that was real and the connection between life and death was real and earth is life and looking down there was his life and looking up there was dead blackness and it was not inviting and yet that's the place a la Bezos, a la my long departed friend Kraft Ericke, where we should be placing industries to preserve the garden planet that is earth. Anyway, into this entire kind of stream of consciousness regarding the transformative capabilities of Bill Shatner, Captain James Tiberius Kirk, to literally uh, transform human consciousness, well, into that, something new in the last few days was entered. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Because I was wandering around the dial on my satellite television system about a week ago. I discovered, if you go to item number four, 
I discovered something called the center seat. 55 years of Star Trek, which is being put on as a documentary series week after week on the History Channel. And after looking at, you know, show number one and show number two, I've got to say, I smell a rat. And it's a very positive rat. You know, remember, uh, FDR said in politics, there's no such thing as coincidence. Well, to me, the coincidence of this series, and it's extraordinarily good. It's good in terms of pacing. It's good in terms of writing. It's good in terms of the script. It's good in terms of the participants. There's not one bad thing you can say about it. And it reveals all kinds of things that even I, who, of course, you know, knew and was friends with and uh, worked with Gene all those many, many decades ago, even I did not know. Not the least of which is episode number one, which is available on the History Channel. You can uh, stream it. Uh, They have an archive. They have a vault where you can stream all of them. Uh, I prefer to wait week to week to week to kind of let, you know, time elapse for me to think about what each episode there's up to now uh, have kind of gone over. Item number one, the first in the series, lays out in stunning, dramatic, and history-changing detail the role of one of my favorite actresses, Lucille Ball, in giving birth to Star Trek. And there are such details, in fact, she put her entire company, it turns out, Desi Lu, on the line to give birth to Star Trek. Without Lucy's vision, without her confidence in Jean, without her willingness to literally, in the food fight over money with NBC, to put up about a third of the budget of the show each week, which which was the most expensive television show to create because of the special effects, of course. And they were damn good for the 1960s. Damn good. Um, Without Lucille Ball, we would not have something that Dr. Solheim and I are going to be talking at length about tonight. So what you want to do is you want to uh, go to that link you want to bookmark it on your on your TV, on your TiVo, whatever you know subscription service you have, uh, whether it's on Dish or uh, uh, DirecTV or whatever, and you want to watch week after week as the story of the creation of Star Trek and the Star Trek universe unfolds. And in fact, as we make this transition, this extraordinary transition from well, from the fiction to the fact of living at the beginnings of the Star Trek universe. I mean, I can't say it uh, any more direct than that. This, in fact, is an exquisite series which I think is going to be, you know, destined to live very long and to prosper. And what more can I say except this?
it's funny because I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So like you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was, there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Anetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, November 13th, 2021. Well, when I was kind of casting around for who I wanted to talk to to do this kind of show, uh, I call it a hyperdimensional deep dive into American history, I did not know that there would be this astonishing new development on the UAP UFO front, namely the uh, DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, again, the person who briefs the President of the United States on all dimensions of U.S. intelligence gathering activities and results therefrom. I did not realize that she would be uh, front and center in a uh, uh, two-hour conference held of all places at the National Cathedral. So then, when I saw that, it, I instantly realized, okay, this has to be, there's only one person that I can call upon to do uh, justice, and that person is the guest I'm going to introduce right now. So without further ado, let me switch screens 
because I have to do this in some sequence here, and tell you who we're going to talk to tonight who is the perfect person to make sense, I believe, of what's going to become a very rich and complicated and totally surprising, nay, probably even shocking to most Americans, set of developments that now are within the foreseeable future. We're talking maybe weeks, months, certainly not more than a year, but probably a lot less. Bruce Solheim was born in Seattle, Washington, to Norwegian immigrant parents, and his, uh, the first person, he was the first person in his family to go to college. He served for six years in the U.S. Army as a jail guard. We didn't get to talk to him last Sunday about that, and I do want to kind of pick up on that, because I think it's part of this formative background which makes him appropriate to uh, talk about some of the things we're going to talk about tonight. Later, he was a warrant officer, helicopter pilot, and is now serving as a disabled veteran. And since we just passed Veterans Day, uh, uh, happy Veterans Day to all the veterans out there. Bruce has also worked as a defense contractor with Boeing for about five years. Dr. Uh, Solheim earned his Ph.D. in history from Bowling Green State University in 1993, He is a distinguished professor of history, American history, at Citrus College in Glendora, California. And he was a Fulbright professor and scholar in 2003 at the University of Tromso in northern Norway. And he has published something like 12 books, written 10 plays, six of which have been produced. Um, And you can read all the rest of his background there on the other side of midnight. Oh, I must get in. He is married to the love of his life, whose name is Ginger. And I can't think of the name Ginger without thinking of uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, of course. They have four children and two grandsons. So without further ado, Bruce, welcome back to the other side of midnight. I, I think you're probably the most recent of the return guests that I've ever booked because tonight I wanted to talk about the other side, not of, of midnight, but of American history. Well, well, thank you, Richard. I'm, I'm glad to be back. And, it, you know, and this time talk uh, a little bit more about my day job. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to put on your other hat, your uh, mortarboard. And before we get into that, I'd, I'd like, given someone who walks in two worlds, because you walk in this other set of dimensions uh, which deal with consciousness, with beings, with aliens, with secrets, with things that go bump in the night, with phenomenology that is not admitted to by mainstream science. You know, I, I, I kind of love Averill's demurred comments, things we don't understand. Um, <laughs> if I was being really, really, really blunt, I would say they're all lying through their teeth and they kind of have to at this point, because if they're going to avoid an extraordinary, excruciating, um, retrospective, you know, pillorying for what the government has been hiding since 1947, if not before, they all kind of have to pretend, oh my, look at that. Isn't that interesting? Well, we never knew that. So what is <laughs> what is your reaction to this conference in particular because I think it's it's so McLuhan-esque, where it was held. The National Cathedral 
I mean, pun intended, for God's sake. <laughs> Have you no decency, Mr. So-and-so? <laughs> No, I think no. It's 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 very appropriate for the big the big picture. The big here. big 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 yes. See, I believe, yeah. and I'll, I'll give you my prejudice. I think that it's it's not because of energy or because of national security or because of a hidden physics. I think the real reason the UFO phenomenon has been deep sixed and marginalized and trashed and lied about vigorously for the last you know sixty plus years is because it's a doorway opening between our reality and other dimensional realities. And we're never, ever, ever supposed to cross that threshold. And something is now forcing us to open that door. Yeah, exactly. I think you, you hit it on the head. And uh, I would, uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to mention the name, but there's a, a, a prominent person in a government person who uh, spoke privately to a friend of mine. Ah, okay. And uh, didn't I didn't hear it directly, but through a friend of mine, uh, and he uh, told me that this government person said uh, what what they say in public is is not what they told him, and what what they told him was that there is a conflict going on between different groups of hyperdimensional beings, ETs, whatever you want to call aliens, and that we're kind of caught in the middle. Oh. This has been going on for some time. And when you hear the well, guy Well, hang on, talk, hang on, hang on, hang on, because that's one of our <laughs> models. Yeah. You know, there. Yeah. remember, we're going to talk a lot about Star Trek tonight. Remember, yeah. remember the original series Star Trek where uh, oh, yeah. the Enterprise, you know, gets to a planet and they beam down and there's this incredible internecine war going on between the chai comms and the ams yeah. ams am something or other the the, the uh, yeah the cooms and the yangs yes yeah, the cooms and the yangs, and the yangs. yes yeah. yes which of course was very thinly veiled um, <laughs> yeah. you know chinese communists and and yankees, yankees and yeah. and uh, oh gene was excoriated for that script as he was mm -hmm. for a number of scripts but he got it through the censors, you know, Miss Priscilla Goodbody. Remember Johnny Carson used to keep talking about the NBC censors, Miss <laughs> Priscilla Goodbody. Got it through the censors, and he got it on television in a way in the 1960s that was unheard of in yeah. any other format or, or forum. So the idea that we're kind of a backwater nowheresville caught in the middle of something so much bigger that kind of ebbs and flows across this part of the, uh, you know, Sagittarius spiral arm of the galaxy is, is perfectly within the model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, the one thing I was, I was looking at, uh, I was going to mention to you is these, um, you know, but my main focus is foreign policy, you know, specifically U.S. foreign policy, but foreign policy in general. And there's these cycles in, in history and there's these great cycles, you know, the long cycles. And then there's the short cycles. And one of them we just started on uh, just now, which was uh, and I've talked to my since as long as I've been teaching you know, at, at the university level, about 24 years. Uh, or longer, actually, since, uh, yeah, about 24 years, I guess. 
but um, that uh, every 40 years or so, we have a paradigm shift in our political system. The center of politics moves, moves one way or the other. And the last one, of course, was the uh, with, with Ronald Reagan. And now, uh, 40 years later, uh, we have another paradigm shift going on. And it's attempting, it looks like it's attempting to move to left of center, whereas with Ronald Reagan, the conservative revolution, it moved to the right of center. And uh, I, I told students that you, you can't really totally predict the, the, the future, but you can prepare based on these cycles. And, and that's, that's a small cycle. That's every 40 years or so. Okay, let, so let, let me ask an unfortunate question because I do that yep. a lot. <clears throat> Where did this, this, let's call it the cycle theory of history, where are the references? Where did that come from? What are you quoting from? Well, I, the, this I came up with. I just kind of stumbled on it as I was you know, studying and teaching American history. But where I got this from was actually Paul Kennedy. Uh, the, uh, uh, he was a, uh, I, I think he was at Harvard or Yale, a, a, a history professor. He wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of Great Nations mm. in, in the 80s, the late 80s. And uh, this talks about the hegemonic powers, you know, the number one powers on earth, they rise and fall. And there's a certain predictability to it. And there's a cycle to it. It's a, a longer cycle. And of course, we're, I think most people realize that we're in the, the decline. And there's other countries, probably, you know, China is a, probably will be, maybe eventually, will take over as the hegemonic power. So it, from that, uh, that book and a lecture that I heard that he did at the Nobel Institute when I was in Oslo in Norway, <clears throat> uh, I got to talk to him a little bit. And uh, that's kind of where I said, well, I'm going to look at other cycles, too. And since I'm focusing on American history, I'm going to look at America. At, and it seems to, to hold true that about every 40 years, that's, uh, uh, I guess, 10 presidential terms, uh, there is a, a, a need for a change and the interesting thing is it's not just like an abrupt change like it just goes from one system to the next there's a transitional uh uh presidency before now with reagan it was the carter presidency which was just a one-term presidency a lot of trans there's a transitional presidency from the you know the end of the vietnam war and the watergate you know thing and and uh and the interesting thing before uh this election of course was the uh the you know the, the trump presidency which i think is a very transitional presidency and similar to jimmy carter's now what be interesting is that i don't think jimmy carter would like to be compared to donald trump and donald trump probably <laughs> wouldn't want to be compared to jimmy carter but nonetheless they served a transitional role in this paradigm shift which is kind of interesting so it just it, you know that's right. So that's where the model originated was with Paul Kennedy. So I have to you know, but that was a, a, you know looking at world history and hegemonic. Powers. Okay, did world. you ever hear the name Edward Dewey? Edward Dewey. Yeah. Uh, I no, I've heard oh, of Peter Dewey. Dewey. Oh, he Dewey. was like the first guy killed, first American killed in the Vietnam War. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, Edward Dewey. You're you're gonna love to follow this up. You know, this mm -hmm. coming week. Edward Dewey was an economist who was hired by uh, Hoover toward the end of the transition between Hoover and FDR's first term. Mm -hmm. And Hoover was a really bright guy. In fact, he was a good guy, but he was stuck. He was so stuck in the past that government should not 
get involved. It shouldn't intervene. It was supposed to be at best a kind of a very distant and not very good referee, very distant. But he did hire Dewey, and Dewey, his, his mandate from the president, it was directly from the president, was find out what the hell is happening and why the greatest nation on earth, the United States, is going through hell in a handbasket. In other words, the foundations of, you know, the crash, uh, the global economic ripples that happened, all of this he put on Dewey. And Dewey, it turns out, was a guy who really could think outside the box. And he started looking at cycles, starting with cycles of history, but Mm -hmm. then branching into cycles of biology in the total global Echosphere, uh, circa the you know 1930s, mm-hmm. and he founded ultimately when he left government, he founded a non-profit private institution called the Foundation for the Study of Cycles, and it's Dewey's work that maps so exquisitely on our work on hyperdimensional physics, because the thing that Dewey found, which he was shocked and so embarrassed to have found was that history and all of these sub-cycles up to and including, you know, the the, the wholesale price of pig iron and the number of sunspots on the sun and all kinds of disparate things that all appear to be in synchronization are part of what he said with abject horror appears to be some kind of cosmic astrology mm-hmm. and and he was terrified of his <laughs> independent discovery that life on earth used in the largest possible sense both human and biological life the animal kingdom etc cetera, etc cetera, as well as economic cycles as well as all kinds of sub cycles all appear to be part of a chartable set of internested cycles that are all going on simultaneously, rising and falling, causing beat frequencies, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that incredible database of really good research started by Dewey is found in the archives of the Foundation for the Study of Cycles. Hmm. Interesting. Long before uh, this guy at Harvard. Right, right. Who probably tripped over it, and because it was astrology, even though it was incredibly, uh, you know, Dewey went to great lengths to try to divorce it from astrology. Mm-hmm. It's what it was because it, it mapped perfectly and all kinds of things like the, the, the migration cycles of links compared to the stock price of coal and stuff like that. So given that the hyperdimensional model says of all of these cycles are modulated by the physical rotations and spins of the major masses of this solar system in concert with our orbit of the galaxy, right there is a huge database to go back and map. And of course, there have been other authors, and I think Dewey himself went and found other people who had looked at historical cycles and mapped a whole bunch of interesting cycles that normally would be very hard to tease out of modern data because these guys, particularly in Europe, have been looking quietly at this, it turns out, for, you know, like a couple hundred years. Yeah. 
Yeah, there. I mean, no, I, I am going to look more into to Edward Dewey. I, I didn't, I didn't know that, and that's that seems to it fits very nicely. The, the 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 other thing that I well, I I just want to tell you this. I was in, inspired last time we spoke, last time I was on the show. Uh, I'm starting to write uh, an article, a short article, maybe an opinion piece. It'll turn out to be kind of directed towards my academic colleagues mm-hmm. about about what I've been doing with my life since uh, my friend Gene, as I said last time, convinced me to start telling my stories, everything that's happened to me that I've been afraid to talk about previously. Yeah, by the way, one and of the major turning points is 2016. 2016, yeah, of exactly. Course, of course, you know. And Had so I, I, I started writing this article inspired by our conversation last time to, uh, to help them, to ease them, to assure them That'll be okay. <laughs> now we'll see how it goes, but uh, you know I have to do the uh, you know the elephant in the room kind of thing to inoculate myself at the beginning of the article, and uh, you know the like like comedians usually do to win over. Well, the you room, might you know? actually start it with a great <laughs> quote from FDR: "We have nothing to fear, but fear itself." Exactly, because it's yeah. the fear of the unknown. Once it's chartable, once it's a science, once it's predictive then the fear for an academic should go away. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And once, so anyway, that I, I started working on that. I'm not sure where it's going to go wow. or end up or whatever, but I was inspired. So I wanted to thank you for that. Well, thank you. That, that, that inspiration. And uh, the other thing I wanted to say was that uh, the, and uh, going back into the 1800s in, in America, the lead up to the civil war, there's a lot of interesting and very kind of, frankly, disturbing parallels to what uh, we're going through right now. Oh, really? And it's actually, you know, the 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 rise of spiritualism, and uh, you know that was a, uh, a, you know, that happened, you know, with the Fox sisters back in the early 1800s, and then it was a really big thing before the the the, the Civil War. So the, 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 there was so many divisions. And by 1850, there were so many divisions. There was a division between, obviously, North and South. There was a division between the rich and poor, between the East and West, male and female, native-born versus newcomer, religious versus non-religious. And if you look at that, I mean, these are the same – you might add a few more divisions that we have that you mentioned you know, in, in our divided country – actually divided world, but let's just talk about the U.S. Uh, these same divisions are are apparent now and are seemingly getting stronger. And uh, it could be, like, you know, President Reagan said that uh, this quote-unquote alien threat or whatever could could unite us not only here in the United States but maybe in the in in the world but what the interesting parallel is that uh is that we were going through very similar things prior to our own civil war and and of course in 1861 broke out actually it broke out before that in Kansas so (laughs) in the 1850s that's Hmm. where it started Bleeding Kansas, as they call it. Yeah, I remember that uh, dimly from uh, from you know history. Um, <laughs> let let us go back to the recent conference. Again, yeah. you know, valet's perception is amazing. I'm going to try to get Jock. I, I haven't talked to Jock in years, but he's been really, you know, a, a incredibly far sighted 
uh, you know, uh, future historian and all this. And when he said all these apparently separate fields are really all the same thing, mm-hmm. God, was he right? And I know that, that from both hands-on, you know, scientific inquiry as well as, you know, the various very bizarre things that have happened uh, to me personally after Robin died. And there's mm-hmm. there's nothing like personal experience to really kind of heighten your perceptivity and sensitivity and kind of paying attention. It's it's amazing how personal stuff gets gets your attention. So let yeah. let us go back to that conference. Um, as I've been pursuing this this research into, you know, ET artifacts, not here but other places in the solar system, grading into who built them, grading into how are we related to these beings, and my conclusion is that. We're talking a very extended and very ancient family that we're mm-hmm. kind of like the poor cousins that have been cut off. There. We're not talking alien aliens. We're talking ETs. The mm-hmm. semantic difference is ETs can be human but hang their hat on Mars, whereas mm-hmm. real aliens do not share our DNA. So when the church said a few years ago that uh, you know, no lesser light than the Pope himself said that he would freely baptize aliens. Well, mm-hmm. if you've been a Catholic, as I have been, part of church dogma is you can only baptize humans, members of the human family who have gone through the human tragedy and salvation of Jesus Christ, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that right there is an affirmation of the E.T. model as you know, cousins, uh, kin, brethren, in a, in a way that is so strong, only you know slightly less uh, less uh, <clears throat> captivating than the first major conference on our future in space is being held, where the DNI is saying there are ETs at the National Cathedral. <laughs> you know, I I that. After the last show, also I was in, inspired. I talked to, you know, I do these spirit walks, and I talked to uh, my uh, ancient alien mystic uh, advisor, Anzar, and I, I, I asked him a question. This uh, is kind uh, of the shape-shifting ET that yes, has manifested yeah. in several different forms to you. Yes, and helped me and actually rescued me in one case and maybe more. That, that I don't even know about yet. But um, I asked him, I said, what do you prefer to be called? You know, it's, you know, ET, alien, extraterrestrial. And he said, uh, uh, how about a long lost relative? Oh, good grief. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> so that it just, it just, uh, you know, we're on the same uh, wavelength there. It just, it was kind of funny that he, that he said that. It reminded me of when I asked a, a Native American friend of mine many years ago. Uh, he's a Vietnam vet, uh, author, you know, good guy. His name was Phil Red Eagle, and I asked him. I said, uh, uh, "What do you prefer to be called, Indian or Native American?" He said, "I I prefer to be called Phil." <laughs> <laughs> I love <laughs> that one. A great answer. <laughs> yeah, super. Super yeah. answer. Okay, so before the break, let me kind of introduce yeah. what I want to, you know, get into. Um, we have been taught, those of us who kind of followed the UFO phenomenon for many, many decades, we've been taught that we were all by our lonesome until some July night during a major thunderstorm 
an alien spacecraft uh, hit by lightning crashed in the southwestern deserts not very far from me here and launched the current modern history of UFOs, to which I would say <clears throat> garbage. Because my evidence, separate from the UFO community, and I use that kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek, um, there's nothing more divided than the UFO community, unless it's Trump supporters and Democrats and the libs and all that, um, is that we have been part and parcel of interaction with extraterrestrial entities, both in three dimensions. And now I will expand that to other dimensions for probably as long as we have been a species. And the current isolation, which I guess is about to be broken, if we can believe the, the DNI, is really an artificial effort to kind of, you know, uh, dam the river up to keep the inevitable from happening as the cycles of the physics keep changing. What do you think? Yeah, I no, I I I agree with you. I, I agree with you that uh, it's it, it's what Anzar has told me is the uh, leap of consciousness that is part of an overall era of reconversion, where we reconnect with our our ancient, uh, you know, ancient humans, you know, that understood in many ways and had a closer connection than than we do, to what we are now coming to realize again. Uh, returning to it, you know, the Native Americans called them star people. So, you know, we're we're coming back to that, and I, I, yeah, you know, I'm looking forward to it. Although I'm not, uh, you know, I, I I know there is there there is going to be some adjustment problems. You think? <laughs> <laughs> some some pretty big adjustment problems. A series of calamities, as as uh, Anzar has said. Yeah. So he's, no, he's really that. saying that it's going to be calamities as opposed to speed bumps? Hmm. Yeah, he calls it a series of, of calamities. Yeah. Hmm. Well, one person's calamity is something which gets another person's attention or, or needs collective action to solve. And yeah. usually problems that require collective action tend to bring people together. So I tell you what, let's that, hold it there. We're true. at the uh, top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim, back by, uh, well, I'd be lying if I said by public demand because uh, nobody knew I wanted to have him back this, this quickly. He's going to wear his history hat tonight, his professor hat, and we're going to talk about in the next coming couple hours the idea of extraterrestrial extra-dimensional, extra-temporal intervention in American history. And is there a discernible, provable pattern? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Do not, under pain of ignorance, touch that dial. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. 
To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>